Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going, and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film The Big Chill from 1983 with my wonderful guest, Daniel Strauss. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. I am your host, Sarah Greenfield. And today on the show, I have my wonderful friend, Daniel Strauss. Hello, Daniel. Welcome to the show. Hi, Sarah. Boy, it's a pleasure to be back. So this time around on the show, we watched the film The Big Chill from 1983. Uh, Daniel, how did you feel this viewing? How did I feel? Yeah, how is this viewing for you? I mean, because you've seen this movie before, right? I've seen it before. Okay. I've seen it before. I remember the first time I saw it, I was, I remember starting it and being like, damn, I thought they were just going to hang out. This movie's all sad. Like, I was like, I didn't know very much about it and, and just went off the title and was like, this is Saturn. I thought it was going to be this time. I think I started it at around probably 9 p.m. at night which is Mm -hmm. usually as early as I can start anything, having uh, two children, two young children. Uh, And I got to tell you, was a bit of a snooze this time around. Had a little trouble getting through it. (laughs) Made it through it. I think think part of it was probably the time of night, like or time of day, whatever, that I watched it. But um, I was not quite as enthralled with it. I I didn't enjoy it as much as my first viewing. So it's really funny to Daniel and I, because we both know this, listeners at home, you're about to be privy to some behind the scenes podcast stuff. Oh boy, here we go. We were supposed to have like a full house today. Like Daniel and I, the reason I chose this film, there's a lot of reasons, but one of them is that Daniel and I are both graduates from the University of Michigan, which is basically like what all the people in this movie are. This movie is about University of Michigan graduates that were friends. Daniel and I were friends in college, and we were going to have two more of our friends from college on this call, but they both got sick. Lauren Lopez and Zoe Palco were both supposed to be here with us. They don't even live on the same side of the country, but they both got very, very sick. So we're sending out lots of healing vibes to them. We love you both. And what's even crazier is that Zoe lived in a co-op in college, just like these characters do. So we would have had the whole co-op perspective. Um, I'm sorry, listeners at home. We don't have that. We just have me and Daniel, but me and Daniel are lovely too. And we lived this experience. So it's really um, fitting that we're doing the big chill. I just, I thought we were doing the big chill, not the big sick. I don't know what's going on over here. That's a really funny joke. It's pretty good, right? Yes, that's really funny. Pretty easy. And it's true. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's almost like a- I got more. It's almost like you're a comedian professionally or something. It's As I said, Sarah, it's almost like it. It, uh, It is absolutely almost like it. All right. So here's let me tell you, listeners, also why I chose this film. One, I wanted to do an autumnally 80s November. 
And this movie is so autumnally 80s. There is autumn everywhere going on in this movie. It's beautiful. Um, Also, as I mentioned, Daniel and I are both University of Michigan graduates, and we were very good friends in college. And that's like what this movie is about, a group of friends that get together um, after a tragedy. We're going to get into the plot synopsis in a minute. Um, But the one of the reasons I picked it for this particular year and this viewing is because it's the 40th anniversary of this film, um, but also their age distance from when they graduated in the film is the same age distance that we are right now. Like we are literally, yes, we are literally in their shoes. We are their ages, the ages of the people in the movie. That's us right now, Daniel. That's why I picked it. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. They feel older to me. The actors are probably (laughs) older, right? The actors are probably older. Yeah. But the ages that they're supposed to be in the movie are the ages that we are now. Yeah. They're playing our age. It's crazy. So that's another reason. And then I also picked this just because um, I have a lot of ties to this movie. So I Daniel's not originally from Michigan, but I am. And I grew up. This soundtrack was such a big deal in our house growing up. This was the Big Chill soundtrack was what you listened to every day. It's a great soundtrack. It's a great soundtrack. And basically, if you were in the car and you were a kid and where I come from, this was what your parents were playing. Um, So it's like a really big part of my formative childhood. And um, and then also in college, I have another tie into it. You didn't have this because they stopped doing it your year. But for my my year, my class, um, they started doing scenes from the Big Chill in um, like the film class. So when you're learning how to act on film, we all did. Yeah, we did ensemble scenes. That's really neat. Oh, yeah. We didn't never do that. You guys did um, All About Eve, I think. That sounds right. Yeah. I bet you were Addison DeWitt. Am I right about that? Uh, I don't remember, to be completely honest. Probably. (laughs) Man, that's, you know, there's certain things you just block out, I guess. I remember the lessons of acting on camera. I hope I applied them enough to book a couple jobs at least, but I don't, I don't remember. No. Well, I played Glenn Close's part. I played Sarah and um, Matt Semler played my husband. I remember this. Kevin Klein. Kevin Klein. Yeah. Did he wear the shorts? Did he come in wearing the shorts? God, I wish he wore those shorts. I'm telling oh, you. I just forgot. Well, I have the shirt that that Kevin Klein wears in this movie. I've had it for, I mean, it's full of holes at this point, but I've kept it from sentimental value. It's like the old, yes. like, I'll get it when we're done. But the old, like, they don't make them like that anymore no. with that style of lettering. I have that shirt too. I can't part with it. I can't get, like, it, I can't wear it anymore. It's full of holes. Yeah. It's I've had it since, I got it, I remember on a, before I even enrolled, I went for it to a trip to Michigan as a freshman, I, incoming freshman. I bought it on that trip. And I, yeah, I love it. I'll never get rid of that shirt. So everyone at home, those are all of our connections with this film. Um, now I'm going to tell you the plot synopsis of the film. Um, okay, so if you haven't seen the film and you don't want to hear spoilers, maybe go watch the film first. But also I should warn you, um, this is a content warning for this film. This film does deal with suicide. So... Um, I just wanted to let people at home know we're going to be talking about this a lot. Um, and some of the characters talk about it kind of flippantly. And we're going to be kind of talking about that and quoting them. So I wanted to put that out there. Uh, but this film is basically about a group of friends that get together um, after not seeing each other for a long time, about 15 years. They're friends from college and their friend has committed suicide. So they all get together for his funeral and spend a weekend together reconnecting and kind of talking about what's gone wrong in their lives or um, a lot of it is basically how they feel that they have lost their ideals, but they're fine. They're comfortable with it. (laughs) It's um, it's it's a character based film with a lot of uh, ensemble work and a lot of discussion. 
and at the end of the film, some of them don't actually really have character arcs, but for the most part, they end up in a better emotional place than when they started. And it's ironic because their friend Alex at his funeral, Harold has a quote where he says, Alex brought all of us together. And then in the end, Alex did bring them together again through his funeral. He kind of got them all connected again. Um, So the death is sad, but it also, you know, kind of helps this group reconnect and grow a little, if you will. Oh, and the film has a fantastic cast. Uh, the cast is Glenn Close. She plays Sarah, Kevin Klein, William Hurt, Jeff Goldblum, Tom Berenger, Joe Beth Williams, Mary Kay Place, Meg Tilly, and Kevin Costner was originally cast in this film as Alex, the person who commits suicide. Um, and now the only part of him that's left in the film is the opening credits that you see them preparing the body for burial. And that's really Kevin Costner's body. I believe he like shot scenes. He shot scenes for this. Yes, he did. So actually, ooh, this is a fun little fact behind the scenes fact too. Um, So I also know a lot about this movie in general. I actually didn't do a lot of research in advance because I just like know things because it's been a part of my life. But there's um, a deleted scene at the end of the film that should be there. It's it uh, flashes back to their time in college in 1968 when they all lived in the co-op. And if I remember correctly, I've read it because you can't like see it. It's not available anywhere. But when we were preparing this for college, they gave us like a course pack that had like the script of the film and all of these other things. But it also had the script of the deleted scene. So at one point in my life and somewhere in my like either in my brother's basement or like somewhere in this apartment, that script probably exists in a course pack. Um, but it is the deleted scene of like Alex, I think is getting everybody to gather for dinner and it shows what they're all doing in the house. And I, the only thing I remember is that William Hurt's character and Joe Beth Williams character was, were having sex. So you're like, ah, look at that. Nick can have sex in the past. Um, (laughs) but yeah, that's, it's like, they felt that because they were talking about Alex, the whole film, he couldn't quite live up to the image. Uh, that nobody could, even Kevin Costner, and that it just didn't work within the film. So they ended up cutting it. But uh, because they cut this, Lawrence Kasdan felt guilty about that. So he wrote him a part in Silverado and that ended up being Kevin Costner's big break. So it ended up working out for him just fine. That's how things usually go in Hollywood. If you get cut out of one picture, they always take pity on you and they just put you in another one and everything works out great. Classic Hollywood. (laughs) Actually, I can think of two examples of that. There's this, and then there's, um, this happened to Robert Pattinson. Did it Robert really? Pattinson, yeah, because he was supposed to be in Vanity Fair, that Reese Witherspoon film, and he played like her son in a future flashback or something, and they cut his part, but they didn't tell him, so he like still, he like brought his parents to the premiere, and they're watching the movie, and he doesn't show up, and the casting director felt really bad about that, so she called him in for Cedric Diggory for the Harry Potter series, and that got him on the map. Um, okay. I feel like there's no other movie that is like this movie because I think we've seen ensemble pieces where people like talk, but there's so many like weird elements about this movie. Um, Like the pregnancy element, for example, people at home, we're going to get into this. It's the weirdest part of the movie that doesn't quite fit and is so weird. Mary Kay Place's character wants to have a baby and she's like not meeting anybody. And so she has decided this weekend that she wants one of her old college friends to impregnate her. With no strings attached, you will not be responsible for this baby at all. And she expects that they'll all be like, yeah, sure, that's great. Or at least one of them. Or at least one of them. And like, not, they aren't really, because that's kind of a big ask. (laughs) Um, 
And it's and in the end, what ends up happening is that Sarah, who is Glenn Close's character, loans out her husband, Harold, to Mary Kay Place so that they can make a baby together. And she partially does this because she had an affair with Alex many moons ago or five years ago, really, and felt very guilty about it. And so this was her way of like karmically evening out her affair. It's a very strange plot point and is not thought through at all. Think about the future, people. Also, do sperm banks not exist? I remembered it midway through watching it that I was like, oh, yeah, that's what happens. What what is this? Yeah, like, I mean, you just kind of said it like there's a way to loan someone your sperm without sex with them i mean and she's like are we all right are we are we leaving the plot summary now are we moving into more i i feel like i the plot summary we're just gonna have to talk about it like i couldn't do a real plot synopsis because there's not really a there's plot. not much of a plot yeah there's not really much of a plot. like she's like watching meg talk on the phone with with her kids is that right with her kids yeah and she's like wow she's good with kids she's like smiling and she's like you know what i have such a good idea and it's the worst idea ever it's an awful idea it in no way like it's it's very much just like somebody being like yeah she had an affair so like the writer being like she had an affair so the way we pay that off is that he gets to do this and it's like that doesn't not only does that not even the score but like he's going to now have fathered a child. Yes. Like at some point there's going to have to be a conversation about. I mean, I guess you could just not tell the child how it happened. You could lie to them and just be like, oh, yeah, we did it the way normal people do. He donated his sperm and, you know, we, but it's like it's so gross. Like yeah. what actually happens and like. Kevin Klein's character is painted as like such a noble guy for doing this. Like it's such a nice like when he's like getting ready for her to come in, he's like, oh, I don't remember how to. It's like, yuck. yuck. Like, you're going to like go home tomorrow and see your kids. This is like gross. This is this is gross. And it's not cute. Also, does he not have a say in it either? Because I feel like Glenn Close is like, I need you to do something for me. He definitely has a say and his say is cool. Yes. <laughs> awesome. I'm in. Just helping out a friend. Yeah, they don't show him for a sec. Like, it's such a, like, gross, like, male fantasy, it feels like. Yeah. Just, like, his wife, who, by the way, Glenn Close, who is just, like, over-sexualized in his in entire film in a compl- in completely unnecessary, yeah. out- like, whoever was behind the camera, Godspeed, uh, wonderful <laughs> director, but but whoever, whoever went out of their way to be, like, no, no, we gotta. This woman is very sexy. We we gotta share that with the viewer. And look, you know, you, you we do the modern lens on this, and you and it was a different time, and I understand yeah. that. But like watching it, I was just like, God, somebody's a little somebody behind the camera is a little too horny for Glenn Close in this thing. Well, it never felt fair to me because you're right. We will talk about this in the modern lens, but she's the only actress that has to be naked in this film for no reason. And why? Like. And why? No reason. I, I, I was sitting thinking of the number of ways you could have conveyed what was in that scene or conveyed mm-hmm. that shot without the way that they it was so glaringly unnecessary. And again, it's a different time. So yeah. it wasn't. But like it's 30 seconds of the film. You cut an entire character. You cut a whole character. But this needed to remain 
in the film. And then you've got later when they turn on the music and they've just got these shots of her butt. They, they keep zooming in on her butt while she's dancing. It's just weird. And then you pair that with the fact that at the end of the movie, she's like, you know what you should do, husband? You should have sex with this friend of ours. It's going to help our relationship. It's going to help me deal with some stuff that happened way back when. You're right. It's a good idea. It's like, what? What? Well, and I get why the shower scene is there in terms of like her character has been very buttoned up and very proper and handling everything the way she's supposed to. So that's like the scene where we see how she really feels. I'm just saying she didn't need to be naked. Like I get I get that in the 70s and 80s, people were like, we need to show things as they are and they're real. And I'm like, yeah. And you know what? If I was in a shower crying, I might kind of cover my boobs a little bit. Also, like that to me, it's distracting because I'm so concerned for that actor. I'm so concerned for how they are being treated and if they are being exploited. And um, it it takes me out of it to see her completely naked. Yeah, it's just it's just so it's just not necessary. It's just not called for. There's a way to convey. She could. Yeah, you're right. She could have her arms crossed. She could be leaning against the wall with her back turned or something like Mm -hmm. there's just I mean, whatever. Like you said, they weren't thinking about it then. And, you know, it is to a degree unfair to, you know, sit here and say like, oh, well, my modern sensibility. But like it just wasn't it just wasn't really called for. I don't know. I'm with you on that. Um, And then I think this tone in general is really interesting. So we haven't said this yet, but. Uh, Lawrence Kasdan is the co-writer and director of this film. He's a famous University of Michigan grad. Go blue. Go blue. Uh, also, it was weird when when um, Jeff Goldblum didn't say go blue and he was like, hey, blue. And I was like, no, no. Yeah. He what? said something like, here we go. Come on, blue. Or like something like that. Yes. It was like, was nobody like, says that. Nobody says that. Jeff. Lawrence Kasdan wrote and directed this. Um, and he also uh, co-wrote this with Barbara Benedict. So it does have like a female voice involved. Um, in the, like the telling of this story. And I do really like Lawrence Kasdan's work. I mean, people at home, you know him from The Empire Strikes Back. He freaking wrote that. That was kind of a big hit. And didn't he write Raiders of the Lost Ark too? Yes, he did. That's why they're singing the Indiana Jones theme in this for five seconds because of Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's an homage to himself. So he's written these incredible films. The tone of this is so interesting to me because it kind of goes between like, being really serious, but then being incredibly cynical. It like walks this line between the two. Um, I love this movie. I do. I'm aware that it's not like a perfect film, but I think because of its like weird idiosyncrasies, that's why that's why I like it. It's just like an unusual film that looks pretty and has good actors in it. So even though it's not perfect, I still enjoy it. Um, and I still think it's like a really cool, a really cool film and, and kind of an unusual film. It's definitely an unusual film. It doesn't really, I mean, uh, so just now I just, I'm looking over his IMDb and um, he also wrote Body Heat, which is, uh, yes. if you haven't seen Body Heat, holy cow, that movie is fantastic. Um, It looks like his first screenplay was The Empire Strikes Back and he wrote Raiders and he wrote Body Heat and, uh, and another picture, Continental Divide and Return of the Jedi. And then uh, this picture got made. So this is not a first picture. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. This is not a writer's like, like this is very much like, okay, I gave you Raiders. I gave you Empire. Now I'd like to make my hour and a half sort of indie, like me and my friends from Michigan get together and spend a weekend, you know, in a, in a plantation house after, uh, uh, yeah, after friend could suicide. So in that way, it put in that context, you kind of understand a little more because 
it's it is a compelling movie, but it doesn't really follow any sort of traditional structure. It's yeah. it's really more just a collection of these sort of interactions and these musings about life and and death and where should you be in your life and and what what's is if anything is making you happy um that that really feel like they're coming from one person's brain just sort of working it all out so yeah it it's a different it there's not really many movies like this because it's a tough thing certainly now uh it's a tough thing to to get away with but but when you look at this guy's resume it's like oh he kind of earned like <laughs> making something that was a little slower and a little more personal well, and he got to direct this. And what he did, I think that was really special and really unique to this film is that he um, he got the actors on set two weeks early and they rehearsed for two weeks, which is like unheard of. Like, that's not a normal, that's not normal protocol. Like for a, a, a film where people sit and talk and there's no action stunts, there's no musical number to learn besides like ain't too proud to beg maybe. Um but he, he, they got to rehearse for two weeks and they would build backstory together. Like they got really physically close. They built backstory. And you, I think you can see that in this film and see that in the performances. It, it feels really lived in. Yeah, I agree. It's very natural. Yeah. So this title, The Big Chill, mm-hmm. um, Lawrence Kasdan said he's gotten asked about it so often. People don't really understand the title. I feel like... I get the title now. I can see how you would think like the big chill is about like, hey, we're going to chill out for the weekend. It's the big chill. What he had originally said was to him, it means that the big chill is what happens when you kind of leave your college bubble with all your friends that you're close with and you go out in like the big cold world and you experience the big chill. But what I think the big chill is, is what happens to you when you're out in that big world. Because I think this film is about how they felt like they used to have ideals and now they have like kind of settled for comfort over activism. And I think this is kind of like, to me, what this movie is, is this generation, I would I would call them boomers. I feel like this is a generation of boomers who are rationalizing, who are rationalizing their comfort and kind of like, I feel like this movie explains what happened to hippies and what happened to activists from the 60s. Let's connect these dots. How did hippies become yuppies? comfort ease it it just like they were able to rationalize it away and there are so many speeches in this that talk about rationalization and that bring this up um i mean meg's character literally says i i didn't think they'd all be so guilty and it it's awful she's a public defender or she's a lawyer who wanted to be a public defender makes that horrible statement and you're like yeah. oh geez and she's like and i i'm not saying this people at home but this is her line she's like now i just rape the land and i'm making money and you're like oh god you're awful but you were able to like rationalize this um so yeah i think to me this is the movie about like what happened to the hippies oh they they got comfortable they, they, got they accumulated wealth they got tired they had to chill they had to chill because <laughs> i i think I, and I don't mean I don't mean to talk negatively about boomers because I don't actually think people should be so tied into their generations and boxed into them. But I think as a whole, if we're talking about like generations, they were able to achieve the American dream in a way that nobody has since. And they pulled the ladder up behind them through the ways they voted and through policy and all of these things. Um, I feel like they were able to accumulate wealth, but no other generation really has since. Um, and so our generation hasn't been able to get comfortable because we don't have any wealth or security. Um, but to them, it kind of came a little bit more easily, but they don't always understand that. 
in this movie, I think they acknowledge it, but I think that's a great read on it on the on the title. I, I think I can see that for sure. To me, it's always reminiscent of um, you know, what I nearly uh did while I was watching it, which is the big sleep. Uh <laughs> and I and I, I don't want to go too hard on it because I do think that I just started watching it too late at night. And it's a yeah. movie that that it's is by definition sort of slow. Yeah. Like you and and it's just a difficult thing when you're like, all right, let me just get through this real quick. It's like that's not really what the, the point of a movie called The Big Chill is. But um I do think that, you know, the big sleep, uh, you know, the big sleep being death, um, this is sort of, you know, what does the big sleep mean for the next generation? Like, what does it mean for, you know, when you're not talking about a noir, you're just talking about, like you were just saying, like these people who are, who have chosen comfort, all of a sudden the stakes are lowered. It's not the big sleep. It's just the big chill. You're just sort of slowly progressing toward the big sleep, you know, but you're just chilling. Whoa. Whoa. So I I don't know. I, you know, I don't know that they, that they specifically use that, but anytime, you know, anytime I see the big at the beginning of a, movie my mind always goes to uh to the big sleep so i mean another good classic film and also a good phrase i haven't seen it uh, to be clear you haven't seen it i've only read about it sarah i told you i don't watch any of these movies i've seen the five we talked about that's where it starts (laughs) i'm not a big movie guy you know i like chopped on the food network okay he's being sarcastic people at home if you watch the big show you would know that this is sarcasm um, I did find a good quote about the cold, though, that Meg has. She says, it's a cold world out there. Sometimes I think I'm getting a little frosty myself. And I'm kind of like, yeah, that's like, that's one of the T-shirt statements of this film, along with Michael's quote that I want to find. It was about um, rationalizations being more important than sex. And the other character's like, what? And he's like, have you ever gone a week without a good rationalization? And you're like, oh, you make a point, Michael. This film has a great opening sequence where we meet the characters over the opening credits without a lot of dialogue. We learn who they are from what the camera is showing us uh, over an awesome soundtrack. So wait, let me break down the opening. There's two like really big character um, exposition moments that are not verbal. And one of them is to show everybody packing and like learning the news of Alex's death. And the other is when they're unpacking their suitcases once we get there. That's when we learn so much about these characters and it's fabulous. So- The opening sequence, um, we see a little kid in a bathtub who, by the way, is Jonathan Kasdan, the director and writer's son, singing, you know, Jeremiah was a bullfrog, which tells us a couple things. One, that's not music from the 80s. That's music from the past. That's the 60s music. And this little kid hears it so much that it's one of his favorite songs and he can sing it to you while he's in the bath and it's adorable. Anyway, so we got that. Kevin Klein is giving his kid a bath. The phone starts ringing. Glenn Close picks it up. She calls herself Dr. Cooper. So we're like, ooh, she's a doctor. Good for you, lady. And um, we we understand that she's hearing bad news. Um, her reaction, her face, she has heard bad news. And then Harold's like, what's wrong? Cut to Marvin Gaye's version of I Heard It Through the Grapevine. We meet all the gang as they are getting ready to go to this funeral. We see Karen's life. She is a bored housewife. Um, she's really sad about this, but she has like all the comforts and luxuries around her. We see, um, Sam who is played by Tom Berenger. He's become a famous actor. He's on a plane drinking a bunch of booze, getting hit on by a flight attendant, getting, getting recognized by passengers with like an us weekly magazine. That's like JT Lancer. Cause that's his character's name. Uh, we meet Michael. 
Michael's played by Jeff Goldblum. He's kind of a creep. He's uh, with his girlfriend, Annie, who's super nice, who he's totally going to try to cheat on all weekend. And um, he like can't find what he's looking for on his desk. And she kind of calms him down and finds it. We see William Hurt's character. Uh, He is driving and taking a bunch of pills that are all kind of in the same pill bottle. And he's driving a Porsche and we're like, oh, you might be a drug dealer. And he is. Um, and then, um, Mary Kay place who plays Meg, she's a lawyer and she's in like a high powered executive office looking out at her at Atlanta. So that's kind of their backstory. Um, they all get together. Oh, do we uh, see Chloe? Do we see Chloe? Oh, we see open? Chloe too. Thank you. Chloe is the younger person. So Alex was dating Chloe, who's much younger than he was. And she's kind of, I would say more Gen X than Boomer. And, um, she's dancing it out. She's, they never explain if she's a dancer or not. She at least likes to stretch. She loves to stretch. And I know yeah. that Meg Tilly was a dancer. So I think they were like, you do this well. Let's put it on film. Meg Tilly was a dancer. <laughs> she was a good friend of mine. They did some close-ups all over her body that were kind of exploitative. I think that's how it should end. <laughs> oh, well. Oh, well. Oh, well. Um, Yeah. And again, over, I heard it through the grapevine. As news is spreading, it's beautiful. It's perfect. And then um, later on when they're unpacking, I love that everybody had packed a hairdryer. Um, that was hilarious to me. And then also that Michael had packed a fuck ton of condoms. And you're like, you're an asshole. Because we saw his girlfriend. So we know he's just trying to cheat on her so hard. And no one will sleep with him. Because he kind of seems like the odd man out. Safely. He's true. Safely. 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 He doesn't want to bring true. anything back with him. He's not going to make, you know, give him, he's going to. Take the proper precautions. I thought that showed that he was a likable, good guy. Oh, God. Oh, they also are all excellent at their careers. I feel like one of the messages of the Big Chill was like, don't go to the Vietnam War because it will ruin your life. Sorry Mm. if you did. That will destroy your life. Um, But also, ideals make you unhappy. Rationalize. I think that's kind of the point of the Big Chill because all the characters that are fine are the characters that have like, let go of their ideals and have just totally rationalized their existence. And the characters mm. that are really unhappy are the characters that are trying to cling to some form of ideal. Um, and the two main characters that are unhappy are Nick, who is William Hurt's character, who might be my favorite character. I really like him in this. And um, Alex, who we never see. Um, and Alex, we know a big turning point in his life was he gave up the Rutland Fellowship. And in doing so, he was drafted into the Vietnam War. So if he had taken the fellowship, um, he never would have been drafted. And that kind of really uh, caused a lot of stress and strife in his life and might have been one of the factors that led to his committing suicide. He even kept his induction notice. And the article about him turning down the fellowship. I think that, yeah, that opening sequence is so great. Um, It's a real lost art these days. Um, And take it with a grain of salt, as I'm a guy who hasn't seen too many movies. But, um, But it feels like that was like a real thing during this time period like it reminds me a little bit of the open to like back to the future where Mm. like you're seeing all these like you're like moving through doc brown's workshop i think and like you're just getting all this information i can't i think it's maybe like a radio playing in the background like i don't know like that's sort of a like exposition dump being rolled out that way to the point where you're like six seven minutes into the movie and you're like i already know everybody I already yeah. know everybody. I already know what their deal is. I already know like 
like it's interesting a buddy of mine and i have been working on this script and and that was one of the things that we tried to do is in the beginning we wanted to introduce all the characters it takes place in high school and we wanted to introduce all of them by showing like you know uh photos on the wall of them in their different clubs and stuff like that and so the whole first page was just describing that and all the people we sent it to were like you can't have this much just exposition like expositional stage directions on your first page nobody will read it you have to get into dialogue um and I mean, I guess it Well, interestingly, though, this movie does start with dialogue. I mean, even though they yeah. then go into that, this this is a little different. It does start with dialogue. But I but I wonder it almost goes into multiple times in this movie. It almost goes into being like a music video. And I and I noted that heard it through the grapevine. I'm pretty sure loops uh, during that opening. I'm pretty sure the song plays almost twice all the way through. So there's a lot of meat on those bones there. There's a whole lot that's being conveyed. But you do that is beautiful writing you do know who everybody is before they've even most of them have even said anything so that really is it's quite remarkable and i imagine it really helped the actors as well you know uh because not only did they have their own backstory that they could create with each other like during the two-week rehearsal period i feel like they talked about like what would have happened to us let's make up stories about this but they also had so much already in the text like what we had talked about um especially with the opening sequence and then with the the second sequence of um what did they bring what did they pack who are they because we see what they all packed um or what they didn't pack in some cases <laughs> yeah only one of them was responsible enough to bring provolactics you're right because nick was a drug dealer and he didn't bring anything he was like i brought my car and here's some clothes in the trunk um but yeah and the music they picked I do think that this might be the best movie soundtrack of all time in terms of like movie that was not made for the film being used in a film. It's like perfect. Uh, the Rolling Stones, you can't always get what you want being played at the funeral. Yeah, I wondered how many of these were like in the script because so many of these sequences almost sort of live or die on having the right song behind them. Um, a song that sort of oftentimes suggests what's going on in the scene, but is not uh overly literal you know heard it through the grapevine obviously a song about finding out that someone's messing around on you but in this context means something very different you can't always get what you want probably almost gets even more literal but still isn't yeah. uh you know it, it, but it but it certainly ties to the images that you're that you're seeing I think they even say something at the end, like, oh, there's going to be a reception held. And then like the next one of the next things you hear is I saw her today at the reception. And, you know, yes. So there were, you know, yeah, a lot of those moments where it's like you need you need this sort of perfect song for this. Most. So I wondered, I'd be curious to know how many were called for in the in the original script. I know that Ain't Too Proud to Beg was. I know that was always in the script. Um, and that's a kind of a famous moment in this film. Uh, after dinner, they've kind of had this big discussion and it's been a little bit heavy. And it's a discussion about like, I liked who I was better in college. Some like Sarah's saying that. And then Harold's like, I'm not going to say that I'm a piece of shit now. Like, I, you know, I, they, so they have this kind of intense discussion about ideals and how they saw their lives and who they are now. And then afterwards, they all work together like they would have done in the co-op to clean up the mess um, to music. And it brings them all together again. And Glenn Close is just <laughs> shaking her butt to that good old Motown sound. Temptation yeah. song. Yeah. And they really make sure we, again, we have to They're like, in. you got to see this. Hey, hey, you in the theater, you know, check this out. What do you, what do you think? Pretty good, huh? Yeah. Two shots. Two shots. They cut away and come back to it. I also need to tell you, 
that I know how they shot that scene. Um, it's misreported on Wikipedia, and I want to set the record straight. You should correct I it. I should correct it. So um, I've seen this film a lot, obviously, and I saw it a lot growing up. But uh, I don't think I understood it till I was a teenager, but I still saw it. And then um, this past year, they showed it at TCM Fest because it was the 40th anniversary. And they had Tom Berenger and Joe Beth Williams there. And they asked them, like, how did you film that scene? We heard that you had, like, earbuds in your ear and then, you know, but we didn't see the earbuds on screen. So how did that work? And they were like, that's not true. What they would do is they would play it right before they would shoot and they'd have to, like, keep the beat of it um, until, like, while they were recording. So they'd hear it, turn it off, hold the beat and go shoot it. Um, So that was, like, what they did to shoot that scene. Um, and Wikipedia is wrong. They did not have like earbuds in their ear. That was not a thing. Is that because there's dialogue over the scene? Um, yeah, I think they wanted to sync up the different shots because some people are in the living room and yeah, some people room. are in the kitchen. Yeah, man, that's a great song. It's a great song. I do love the, the music from this movie. It's excellent. It's so smart. I realized it this time. Harold puts on the Temptations and so they're playing Ain't Too Proud to Beg and then it goes into a different Temptation song like maybe 20 or 30 minutes later because they're listening to the same album. And I was like, oh, that's smart. You kept track yeah. that they're still on that album. And they've got Smokey Robinson, Tracks of My Tears. And that's a song that probably would have come out while they were in college, right? Yes. All of this music would have been popular in 1968 mm. or would have been known. So it's like their youthful college music. Yeah, pretty cool. Also, Tom Berger had mentioned, they asked him, I think, like, what was your favorite moment to shoot? And something that he had said was that there's this moment towards the end of the film where they're all in the kitchen and um, they're like getting ready to leave. And his character and William Hurt's character had kind of had a tiff the night before. And he said, there's a really quiet moment that happens. So the rest of everyone else is having dialogue, but there's a moment where Nick comes into the kitchen, puts his hand on Sam's shoulders and they look up and have a moment. And it's not like the focal point of the screen, but it's just something that's happening kind of in the background. And he said that was his favorite moment to shoot. Um, that mm. it was like just this special thing that you kind of only see if you're paying attention and it's really meaningful and really lovely. And like just that forgiveness happening, like wrapping it up before the movie ends and you can catch it or not. But it's like, that was his favorite moment. To yeah. It's so wild to me how no, none of the altercations in this film really ever get horribly out of control. No. You know what I mean? Like people get mad at each other, but it's, uh, it's very true to life. They sort of just get angry and they all get resolved one way or the other. Yeah. Uh, whether or not you agree with the way they resolve them is another issue. But um, there's no moment where like, oh, everyone in the house is mad at each other now. Yeah. And, uh, things are not going well. Like it maintains this sort of even keel through most of the film. This chill. This yeah, exactly. Chill. Yeah. Big chill. Yeah. Well, what's always struck me about this movie is that they don't all want to hang out together all the time. Like there's not a ton of fully ensemble scenes, which is always weird to me. Like, because if I haven't seen someone in 15 years, I want to be like, let's spend every second of the weekend together and hang out. But they don't. They're kind of only together for those two dinners. It's like three big scenes when they're together. And then they all kind of branch out a lot of the time. And I kind of wonder if that's a part of it, too. Like, there aren't a lot of big fights because they're diffusing it themselves. It's like, I'm annoyed with you. I'm leaving the room and I'm going to fix this on my own. And maybe it'll be another scene and maybe it won't. But like. It does feel really real to life, but that always struck me that they don't actually spend that much time as a group. They kind of break off a lot. That feels very real to me. I mean, I think, you know, when you like, I don't know, two people going on the grocery store run and like two people want to go check out this like field or whatever, like 
I don't know that that you know my college friends and I used to do we used to meet up like once a year after uh, school like uh, every year for a long time, uh, and and it, th- there was a lot of aspects of this hang. I mean, obviously we were far less removed from our college days, but that sort of uh, rang rang true to me. And that was one of the things that people would split off and go do their own thing for a bit, and then you know you could reconvene at meal times and stuff like that. That all you know that all tracked. Tracked with real life, not mm-hmm. with movie life, but real life. And that's why well, I, I don't like, know oh. anything about movie life. I don't know. <laughs> you know, like I said, just not a movie guy. I don't know what to tell you. You know, I'm sorry. Um, Doing my best. So another thing I learned from Joe Beth Williams mm. was that everybody that read um, the script, like all the women that read the script, only wanted to play Mary Kay Place's part. No one wanted the parts that they were offered. They were like, can we please play that part? And they were like, no, that's we picked someone for that. So yeah, her and Glenn Close both wanted to play that part, but then were kind of shifted into their other roles. And I think they're perfect at them. Like Jo Beth Williams is really good at her part. You really, I wouldn't want to play Karen. I get it. I'd want to be Mary Kay Place's part too. It's the most comedic. It's very fun. Um, But I I did think that was interesting that they didn't see themselves in their roles, but the roles are so perfect for them. That is interesting. I mean, those two roles have a little, I would think a little more meat on them. Uh, You know, like you said, Sarah's the one who's sort of trying to, maintain this um this sort of demeanor that and and it's so interesting to watch when it spills out how she's actually feeling the moment where she cracks that joke uh that incredibly inappropriate joke about you know if you want to stay at this place oh yeah you can stay here but they give first priority to you know if you kill yourself in the basement or whatever it's so interesting because i i actually i had an interaction recently with a, a a friend where i made Similarly, like a very inappropriate joke and not around somebody who I should not have made the joke around. Uh, and I immediately said, just like she does, I immediately said, I'm so sorry. I don't know why I said that. That was in, that was vastly inappropriate. And it, I'm sorry, it's been a long week and it just sort of came out. And uh, and the friend was sort of like, yeah, yeah, it's OK. She was, she was like, that was a very dark joke, but, you know, whatever. It's, you know, it's OK. Well, I'm so glad you mentioned that moment, because what's striking me right now is like, Sarah makes that joke and then acknowledges like, oh my God, that was a really messed up thing to say. But I feel like other characters make really messed up jokes and there's certain characters that are allowed to kind of make those jokes with each other. They can get away with it. Nick makes them. Nick makes them. There's the part, um, what are you talking about? He didn't kill himself. He cut himself shaving. He always had hairy wrists. And you're like, whoa. Yeah, because they're trying to, that's that's how people process things. You know, like you have to like allow people, I mean, that again, that's very real. It's completely incomprehensible. The one thing that's never really answered is like, why did this happen? Why, why, you know, yeah. could any of us have prevented this? Could any, could somebody have like, well, oh, this line where uh, I think it's uh, it's Meg and and I can't remember. Two of them are in the car, and one of them says, you know, the last conversation I had with them, we had an argument. Oh, that's probably why he did it. Yeah, it was Nick <laughs> and Meg. Yeah. I wrote it down. Yep, that's totally why. That's totally why. And I did then it. she's like, "What did you say? Well, what were you talking about? Oh, I told him he's wasting his life." <laughs> You know, so it's like, yeah, you know, like you like you immediately make that joke of like, eh, yeah, that's pro- like, obviously, that's not why he did it. Then you find out what the conversation was about. And you go, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that. You know? Yeah. Um, But it's finding the comedy in that in, in the reality of these people, you know, people who are left behind, people who are you leave and everybody else is is still at the party and, and everybody sort of got to figure out a way to keep going. Uh, It's explored in various ways. What I also think is interesting about this is it's like very drastic because it's like the two people that are kind of left behind in this. I mentioned this earlier. They're the people that went to Vietnam and everybody else 
is incredibly successful, like almost comically so. Like no one can be this successful. You don't have a group of friends where they all kind of have really high profile jobs. One of them is literally the lead of a television show. One yeah. of them is a writer for People Magazine. One of them is a doctor. One of them runs like a multi-million dollar successful business. One is a very successful lawyer. One is a housewife, but it's like she she got exactly what she wanted basically. So it's like you have these people that got exactly what they wanted, but are still unsatisfied, which is life. But then two people who really fell short, two people who were drafted in the Vietnam War, fought in Vietnam, are deeply scarred from their time there, um, still probably struggling with PTSD and physical complications. Like we know that Nick is not able to have sex um, and they probably never got the help they needed. And theirs are the two lives that are completely derailed. So it's just like startlingly contrasted in that like, one group got everything they wanted and one group didn't. And wow, the difference is there. Yeah, although uh, Michael seems like he's still, he's sort of uh, not, he's- Oh, he's so disdainful of people, the People Magazine, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Like his job is not exactly, like it sounds like he's had, he has a job, but uh, it's certainly not what he wants to be doing. But he's going to write that novel in the end about this weekend. Yeah, I don't know if it's going to translate to print, but uh, we'll see, <laughs> I guess. We'll see. I did think it was kind of funny that, like, in you know, in the middle of the movie, Nick discovers this uh, video camera. And so, you know, that becomes a motif throughout the film, right? Yeah. That, he's, that people are making these home videos. and then, But what was funny to me is that it's like, well, <sighs> there's just one rule. If you make a home video you have to watch it with all of us like, yeah. <laughs> regardless of how painful the conversation was. So there's like the part where he's like interviewing Chloe and they're all sitting there watching it. She's like, Oh, Nick, are you okay? And he's just like sitting there watching in the chair. And I just imagine being like, wish I hadn't filmed this. So I didn't have to watch it with everyone, but that was the one rule we made off camera that if you, if you film a home video, you then have to watch it with at least half the people here. Oh, well. And we learn some things from those home videos. I mean, we learn a little bit more about Alex. We learn a lot about Nick through that home video. We learn that he was basically like Fraser Crane and had like a job on the radio um, as like a radio psychologist and quit when he realized when it came to ideals, when he was listening back one day and was like, who am I to tell these people what to do? So yeah, his ideals really got in the way. If only he could have rationalized, he might still have that job. No, I thought it was funny that they have to then watch it. If we make a video, we have to watch it together, no yeah, matter guys, what's on it. Hands in. Hands in. We're all watching. At least half of us are watching whatever comes out on those home videos. Do you think they watched that one sex video where Jeff Goldblum was talking to Glenn Close about everybody in the house having sex except for them? Do you think they all had to watch that together? We don't know. Yeah, we don't know. It just plays on the TV. But that was a funny one. Um. So... Who would you be now that we're their age? I do not feel like I have anything in place the way they do. But again, the systems are different for them than for us. Like, it's hard for me to judge them because I don't know what I would do with comfort because it's never been like yeah. a thing that I'm allowed to have. Because again, the generations and what we the systems that are in place are very different for our generation versus theirs. Right. So I don't know. We we can't like afford to to, I guess, get lazy because we need activism because we're not or we don't have comfort. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. Um, But anyway, how do you feel now knowing that we're their age and that it's like so different? And also, do, were there any characters that you like resonated with? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess the one who like felt closest 
it's not the same, but like the Kevin Klein character, I guess, like the one who like just has a family and a and a job. The sweet normal one. Well, to a point, these sweet normal till the bizarre ending of the film. Uh, but I guess like his, you know, that sort of role in the group. It seems like he's gonna sort of fill the Alex role. You know, I disagree. I think he's the dad. I think he's like their dad. I think that Nick fills the Alex role. And I think Nick is really parallel to Alex Um, because Nick is the one when they're kind of about to fight over dinner. He's like, I know what Alex would say. What's for dessert? So I think Nick kind of can fill that Alex. Oh, that's interesting. But I've also seen this movie a lot. (laughs) Well, no, that's interesting. I just thought of it as as that they say Alex brought us together and and I could see him stepping into that role a little bit more. He also does insider trading, which is completely illegal and like at one point sarah's like you know you can't keep going around doing insider trading with everybody we're gonna get in trouble and she says that while she's high on cocaine so that's also why it's additionally funny yeah right he's just like well sorry i think it's cool to do i i like it i like insider trading so yeah but i but in terms of like where he's like at in his career and where he's at in his life like i feel closer to michael like oh yeah, I didn't particularly relate to him as a character because he's a creep, but he's still hanging on to like, you know, I'm going to start a club or I'm going to write a novel or I'm going to, you know, whatever, whatever. What I'm doing right now is just for now, you know, like yeah. uh, that's something that you don't that you only see that with him. But he's still successful. So it's like he's not doing what he wants to do, but he's still successful. Yeah, you know? I guess so. Yeah, he's writing schlock, but he's OK with it. So I, I don't know if that what about. Well, I'm going to turn it on you now. What about you? Oh, I haven't thought this far. Oh, you haven't? Oh. One more thing about Harold before we get we leave Harold. Please. What I think is interesting is I feel like he's the only character that doesn't have a full arc, really, in this film. Mm. And he's kind of perfect from the get-go and doesn't really complete that. Like, he's already had his emotional journey. He finds out his wife is cheating on him with his best friend. They all kind of work together. They get over it. They're fine with it. So that all happens before the movie even starts. He's just kind of steady and stable the whole time. And then in the end, he gets to have sex with Mary Kay Place. And he's also the one that's like friends with the cops. So Nick has that comment about like, oh, you're friends with cops now? Because back when we were radicals, you weren't so into that. Um, And he's the one that also remembers Huey and and Bobby. So when when Mary Kay Place is like, I didn't think they'd all be so guilty. I thought I'd be representing. And he's like, Huey and Bobby. And you're like, oh. So he's like weird because he hangs on to the past clearly. Like he loves music from the past. He clearly understands... uh, like, I don't think he's a full on Republican, but he does say things about, like, don't be such a bleeding heart or like he's friends with the cops now. I am Mr. Cooper. Like, it's a weird I don't know what to make of his character, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Mm. Yeah, he doesn't have much of an arc. He's pretty much the same guy by the end. And you're just yeah. sort of supposed to think he's a lovely guy, a lovely guy with very teeny tiny running shorts. He goes running every day. The smallest shorts in the world's smallest shorts. These smallest shorts. Where were his children? I think they were staying at the parents' house. Is what okay. I or some they were at somebody else's house. That's their house. They're at his house, right? Yes, they're very okay. gorgeous, very large southern house yeah. on the river, South Carolina. Were they? I thought they were in North Carolina or Virginia. I don't know where they were. No. They mentioned Virginia. No, he at one says point. the Richmond place, but no, a group of seven former college friends gather for a weekend reunion at a South Carolina vacation home. Oh, after yeah, it's so amazing to that this is a movie about almost so much. This movie is about a character who never appears on screen. Yeah, so much talking about a guy who is not there. Like it, just pulling that off um, is remarkable. 
and I guess trying to figure out why why he would kill himself. And I feel like that's such a you can't how can you answer that? You can't live inside someone's interior. So it's so, you know, he had all of these things going for him. It's a mystery. People are a mystery, you know? And it's never answered. And Chloe's an interesting character that I guess we haven't talked about a lot. That's the Meg Tilly character. Um, she'd only been dating Alex for four months, but that she has that great quote about like he said he had too many expectations and I had none. And that's why we made a great couple. She mentions there's a point where she's like, I've never really seen what happy people are like, so I don't know how they would behave. Um, and she really gravitates toward Nick and they kind of start a relationship towards the end of the film. But she's just a really interesting character as well. It's interesting to think about what well, I remember thinking about this first time I watched it, too. What can we learn about him from her? And what I sort of land on usually is like they only were dating for four months. I don't know yeah. if there is that much we can learn about him from her, which makes her even stranger as a attendee. There, you could almost write her as the everyman character. You know, she could be the representative for like for us that we see these friends mm. having this weekend. But she's not. She's quirky and she's got her own sort of. She's young. She doesn't seem to have much figured out yet so she's a really interesting sort of I think about if if this was like me and my friends and there was just one person there it was like nobody really knew um how that changes the dynamic although it doesn't it doesn't really phase them um yeah which is interesting because she's she's kind of weird you know well she's offbeat that's the word yeah she's she's unusual yeah um but I kind of like that about her it It makes her more interesting (laughs) yeah yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. She's definitely more interesting than just some like kid who's crying all the time. You know, she yeah. doesn't cry till till the end with the part with the jacket. You know, that's mm. when she finally starts to let it out. She does let it out in sweat, though. You know, she loves to stretch. She stretch. She does her dancing and stretching. She loves yeah. to stretch. <laughs> that's her characteristic. What do you know about this character? Well, she likes to stretch oh. in ballet clothes. One of the best stretchers. Top notch stretcher. Top notch stretcher. Yeah. I was relieved when um, Nick was filming her, though, that he focused on her face because you know, when we first see her, it's like we see her body, but Nick didn't. Nick was just filming her face. And I went, thank you, Nick. Thanks for not being a freaking creep with your home video. Thank you, Nick. Okay. We, I do feel like, um, becoming your parents and losing kind of yourself in your youth is like another part of this. Like I think there's a lot of moments, uh, in here where they like see themselves about like, I don't know why I said that my parents said that, or it's like, realizing that things are kind of cyclical in life and then at some point maybe we do end up becoming our parents yep it just happens anyway it's nothing you can do about it also you turned it on me and i never answered well i just yeah, realized oh, yeah. i deflected which back. one are you who are you i this thing? am none of them <laughs> yeah i mean that's been pretty um, much how i feel too like you know <laughs> i feel like uh if i was playing a part mary Kay places part would be the most fun to play but i think in real life i don't i don't know i might i hate to say this I really hate to say this, but I, I kind of understand what Alex was going through a little bit in terms of you start off thinking you're on one path. You do a bunch of odd jobs finding your way because none of the other characters did that. They kind of were like, I'm on this path and they went for it. So I think Nick and Alex were the only characters that tried other things. Um, so I can see myself in them trying different things and trying to see where you land. Um, but I also don't feel like I... Spoiler to people at home, I did not go to the Vietnam War. I'm not a veteran. I don't suffer from that PTSD. So I yeah. don't have that in common with them. It's hard to like pin down one and be like, oh yeah, that's that's, <laughs> that's me. me. I mean, it's just a different I'm it's just sort of a different time, I think. 
maybe that's part of it or maybe part of it is that these are just fictional characters who just aren't they don't really work like that you know i don't know yeah um and we didn't really talk about sam and um karen kind of having a brief fling and oh and this is backstory that's not really in the the film they do mention that um sam has kind of always had a crush on karen and that karen used to date nick uh but in that like deleted scene sam is like pining over karen if i remember correctly so it's like something that tied back in where you like see that he was a little bit nerdier, wasn't so cool and really wanted her. And she was so into Nick and didn't have time for him. So that's kind of something mm. that was lost with that deleted scene. That's funny. But he's doing great now. He's JT Lancer on TV. He's the one and only JT Lancer. Oh, and they really did have a stunt double jump into that car. There's a whole thing in the movie where um, they want him to like do the stunt that he does in the show and jump into like a convertible and he biffs it and hurts himself. Um, but both, in the fictional show, that's a stunt double. And when he does the fake one where he hurts himself, that's also a stunt double. So it's never Tom Berenger. Always a stunt double. Yeah. But uh, him and Karen have a brief little fling. They have sex for about five minutes. And um, it's fine because she's bored in her marriage and life and he cannot commit. She's funny, too, because she's like very much telling him, trying to like telling him she's going to like leave her husband and this and that. And she's ready and that's it. She's leaving. And then that last scene with the two of them where she's like, well, maybe uh, I can take Richard and the boys out to LA. Come visit you on the set sometime. Yeah. I think Richard would like, she's like very clear. She's like, yeah, Richard would like that. Like, Well, because I think she would have, I think if he was into it, Oh, I don't think Cause so. they have that moment when they're kissing and he's like, just so you know, I, uh, I can't make this a real thing. And she's like, for 15 years, you've let everyone know that I'm the one you really want. She doesn't say it like that, but that's what yeah. she says. I think she would have, you don't, you think it was always, she was always going to stay with Richard. Oh yeah. So you stay, that's what the whole theme of the movie is, movie is staying with what's safe. You know, it's, it's one crazy weekend. Well, it's like staying with what's safe, but like finding hope. Because I feel like in the beginning, that preacher guy is like, Alex lost his hope and we must all find our hope. So by the end, I do feel like they all have hope, but they're all kind of sticking with their lane still. They're just doing making little tiny adjustments. Yeah, I don't think she was ever gonna leave richard no no she has a good life i love that we meet richard i love that he shows up and he is every i love that he has maylocks and a picture of his two boys on his nightstand when he travels he is such a square he is he's almost a cartoon no one's that like that really right yeah he's awful what he's like up in the middle of the night having a sandwich on white bread and some milk like yeah he's you know talking shit about alex who died who he never met and he's like, yeah. it's not right for someone to do that. And he, I think he says something like, nobody ever said it would be fun. And I was oh, like, yeah, oh, that's, yeah, boy. Yeah. Wow. No, not to me, at least. Talk about empathy. Yeah, he seems cool. Um, yeah. But I like that they all talk about their feelings. I like that Sam talks about his feelings. I like that Michael's super duper honest to the point where you're kind of like, dude, that's insane and a little harsh. But you're honest about it. And I kind of like that nobody likes Michael. <laughs> I think they like him. They goof around on him, but I think they like him. He's kind of a weird. Uh, you've seen it more times than I have. He's a weirdo. No, you're right. He's kind of weirdo. I feel like they bond more at the end, but I feel like Glenn Close is kind of like, ugh, Michael. And then Mary Kate Place is like, I don't want to fuck Michael. <laughs> like, <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, obviously. I mean, but that's fair. I mean, I get why she would say that. Like, he's a little, there's a little, you know, you want, the, I mean, because it's like, oh, no strings attached. Like, well, there are going to be undoubtedly some. Yeah. And for some reason, you're insisting on doing this the old fashioned way. So I get that. But he reminded me of a, of a friend of ours. But he's just sort of an eccentric, like kind of 
stranger guy who seems to, you know, he's in the group, but he's sort of on his own path. Yeah. I mean, you know, in the way that these characters are all sort of echoes of people that we know, I guess. And they do have a history, him and Meg. He mentions that they slept together at the March on Washington, which I'm like, that's a whole lot of information to unpack. Wow. Okay. Whew. All right. <laughs> the one thing we didn't cover that I do want to cover are the Michigan shout outs. I love all the Michigan references. Um, so at one point they're watching the MSU game and I figured out, so the MSU game always falls around my birthday. In fact, I was born the day before an MSU game anyway. Um, so I knew they're watching the MSU game, but I figured out that they were watching it. They would have been watching it on, um, October 9th, 1982 is what I figured out. Um, anyway, they're watching the Michigan game. We get a Bo Schembechler shout out. He was the coach of Michigan. (laughs) That was fun. Um, they talk about the Michigan Daily. That was the Michigan University of Michigan newspaper. My cousin wrote for the Daily. Um, did you? I didn't write for the Daily. I don't think I ever wrote anything for the Daily. I knew someone that wrote for the Daily. I did too. Um, go Blue. You know, that's a Michigan thing. Go Blue. Go Blue. They played the fight song during a play. And I was like, no, no, no. You play it when we get a touchdown or when there's a field goal. That is when you play that fight song. You do not play at mid play. No. Incorrect. Yeah, you wouldn't do that. And then we mentioned earlier, Jeff Goldblum said something weird that was not go blue. And we were like, you don't know what you're talking about. And then um, Kevin Klein talks about Kobo Hall, but I feel like he said it. Maybe it's because he has a Southern accent in this, but I feel like he was like, Kobo? And I was like, it's Kobo. That's in Detroit. Okay. They're all doing their best. They're doing their best. Yeah. So there's a lot of like very specific University of Michigan references and just Michigan in general references. That is fun. That is always a fun thing about watching this movie. And I would wear all their merch to this day. Kevin Klein's shirt, his cool beret. I would wear all of that Michigan gear, his scarf. Oh, yeah. I love that hat. Yeah, yeah. I love all that stuff. Then they go outside and throw the football around. I mean, all that stuff felt very real. Um, I really like the part where they hike it to, I forget who, but he like stands on someone's back. And I was like, ow, did you just, you didn't even run that by him. You just stood on him. Ouch. Sometimes you got to make the play. And one time Jeff Goldblum fell real hard and I don't think that was on purpose and I think he hurt himself, um, but he kept going in the, the shot. The show must go on. The shot must go on. We're moving on to our modern lens portion. What does not hold up? I feel like we pretty much talked about this a lot where it's like Glenn Close being naked and close-ups of her butt feels like it really sexualizes her and doesn't need to. Um, no people of color in this film, uh, but we do talk about like giving up on activism and kind of just like letting all that go. And so when they like name check Huey and Bobby and you're like, oh, so you know better, but you're still not doing better. Yikes. That feels a little feels human, but it feels like, Oy. yeah. Oh, and to be clear, it's Bobby Seal and Huey P. Newton, who are Black Panther co-founders who did not have proper rep- representation. They were not allowed to choose their representation. That's what that was referencing. Um, the pregnancy plot's real weird. Um, the drug use is excessive. They do a lot of drugs. Yeah, very flippantly. Cocaine, quaaludes, all the pills, yeah. um, some pot. Yeah, they, they do a lot of drugs. And I mean, one of their friends is a drug dealer. So like, I guess. It tracks. Um, but as Robin Williams said, cocaine is God's way of telling you, you have too much money. And then Michael being super gross is another modern lens thing doesn't hold up. Him totally hitting on Chloe all the time, even though she's very... Clearly not interested. Um, and just him in general being pretty gross. He's a bit of a creep. He's a bit of a creep in this. And it's Jeff Goldblum. So you're like, oh, we still like you, Jeff. But you're real creepy in this. Do you think that's how Lawrence Kasdan saw himself? Because in my brain, Michael is Lawrence Kasdan. Oh, really? And I'm like, oh, did you write that as yourself? Because he's the writer. 
Maybe. I don't know. You know, he like definitely like pursues this girl, but he doesn't ever go too far uh, with it. He has that great line about this is unrelated, but that great line where he's like peeing outside and he's like, that's the great thing about the outdoors. Everywhere is a toilet. Like talk about a classic Goldblum line. And then he has not washed his hands and immediately puts his hand that he just peed off of right on Harold's shoulder. And I go, ew. That's friendship, though. Your friend's urine is going to be on your arm sometimes. Wonderful. The line about the police holds up and introspection and sharing your feelings holds up. Yeah. I mean, a fair amount of it holds up. It's just sort of like it's all explored through a, a filter of a of a world that has changed yeah that's all it's all spoken in a, with a frame of reference that that uh it often rings very true but some things about it just feel dated just by the f- virtue of the fact that it was made in 19 what for, did you say 40 years 83. ago yeah 40 years ago so there's there's still a lot of it that feels modern but um this isn't one of those things but the ending of this movie is still so weird to me it's so abrupt it's like sorry it's over now like i and i get like actually the like sort of parallels of that like it starts with a suicide and it ends with we're staying forever um you're not building toward any sort of finale there is literal climaxing in the film and that's that is the climax well i mean it is though that's the climax of the film but you know after that, it's not like there's not going to be some resolution. Nothing is resolved. Everybody yeah. just sort of, said, you know, oh, we have to go back to life. No, we don't really want to. Yeah. It's much nicer just hanging out, making dinner and, you know. Oh, man, the part when they're in the grocery store and they're like debating to get ice cream and their cart is just full of like Coke and beer and like sugar cereal. It's like, I don't know. Ice cream, that's not healthy. I never touched the stuff. Yeah. I was like, you guys are already sort of, you know, just, why not get a couple of little, little ice cream? You're already halfway there. Um, I actually do want to, there was a quote that struck me about what you were talking about um, that Glenn Close has, where she's kind of like lamenting, like what has happened with this generation for her specific, like for all of them. But she, she says, I'd hate to think that it was just fashion. And someone says what? And she says, our commitment. And she's talking about activism. And Mm. I think because activism, I, I wonder this about Gen Z because activism is so much a part of their lives because the world has been falling apart basically their entire life, right? So activism is super important right now. People see the importance of activism like they did in the 60s and 70s. And so I wonder what our future is. I mean, again, they they got comfortable. So I, I understand how getting comfortable can kind of melt all that away, but because our generation just doesn't have this wealth, um, we can't really get comfortable. So I don't know. I'm just really curious to see how this flows and if it's like another big chill kind of thing um like where where the activism is going to go and if it is just quote unquote like a fad if it's commitment you know we if we let it all go it's kind of sad isn't it yeah a little i mean but it's what happens to people you get older and and you get tired and uh you know you see the world change and and you see you know new people come in who have new ideas and and or have more energy than you and and kind of look at them and you go all right good luck i tried oh the ennui that's definitely very that's definitely very real i mean yeah but i think what you i think you put it very uh very well i don't have too much to add to what you said well and now i'm also realizing and then the generation behind you blames you so i spent this episode being like but the boomers but gen z is already like the fucking millennials so it's like yeah yeah oh we tried we didn't know better at the time and we did the best we could with what we had when we knew what we knew we tried yeah most people are doing their best i hope 
All right. Oh, and we talked about uh, Sam playing JT Lancer and JT Lancer people at home is basically just like if Magnum PI and TJ Hooker and who else? Like there's got to be in Hawaii Five-0. All those old cop shows. All the old He's cop all shows. It's all of them. And he has a mustache. Yeah. And we get to see the whole opening credits for JT Lancer. So enjoy that. And the opening credit sequence ends with him in bed with two women and giving a thumbs up. So lame. Which is still more palatable to me than um, having sex with one of your college friends at the behest of your wife. Yeah. Still have less of a problem with that than um, what goes on there. Also, I did a little bit feel like Tom Berenger was like, I have abs right now. May I please sometimes have my shirt open for no reason? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> God bless. Yeah, why not? You look terrific. You look terrific. I guess if I had abs, I'd do that too. So. Yeah, I would definitely be doing it. We're going to move on to the double feature portion of this show. If you liked this movie, check out these other films. Uh, for me, this movie feels very, very much like Diner. I feel like I get Diner vibes from this. Um, but it's more like women are also involved. <laughs> um, so I feel like Diner is a good watch with this. I feel like The Breakfast Club. Yeah. Uh, I get a lot of Breakfast Club vibes, especially oh, when we were sure. talking about um, exposition. To me, the way The Breakfast Club starts, the way we are introduced to those kids is very similar to this. So yes, um, The Breakfast Club, uh, Broadcast News, I feel like has similar vibes and deals with ideals. And also William Hurt is in it. Um, St. Elmo's Fire, a group of college friends trying to figure it out. I wrote Beaches, similar thing, friends through the ages and how they adapt and change. And then um, Anatomy of a Fall is a movie I just recently saw, um, which is a it's a contemporary movie, but it's very good. But it's about this woman who goes on trial uh, for it's like it's about so much more than it presents. Like it's it's about her relationship with her husband, but they're, they're trying to sell it as like, it's a mystery and it's a courtroom drama. Did she kill her husband? It's did she kill her husband or did he commit suicide? And so when they're examining their lives together, it's so much of what comes to light about a real human relationship and kind of the fall of a real human relationship and um, what would potentially lead someone to commit suicide. And can you ever judge that? Uh, and it's it's really good. Uh, and uh, I don't know. I, to me, it kind of has similar like examining your life and your relationships kind of vibes. So even though it's tonally quite different, it's a very good film that has that element to it. And it's very natural as well. Um, I also wrote Children of a Lesser God, just because it's also autumnally 80s and William Hurt's in it. Why not? I have a couple double features. Tell me about your double features. Well, I haven't, obviously I haven't seen these because I'm not <clears throat> the biggest movie guy, but uh, I would say, um, first of all, I'll just say it because it's the same director and we mentioned it earlier, but a body heat, it has like nothing to do with this movie. It's not similar at all, but it's great. So just see it. William Hurt is in it. That's, right. okay. you know, that's, a, there's that's a the connection. connection. But, uh, but thematically it couldn't be more different, but it's a great movie. And uh, you mentioned uh, this guy before too, Robin Williams, Dead Poets Society. Uh, mm. You know, it's not quite the same, but I could see that pairing with this, some, sort of meditations on hope and life and uh, and the future and all that from some people who are still in school. And autumnally 80s, once again. And I'll also say um, Armageddon Time, which is a 2022 uh, film. Uh, Anne Hathaway, Jeremy Strong, uh, thematically fairly different from this, but it takes place in the 80s. It's a coming of age story. Um, but it's sort of, you know, echoes of... Uh, of this movie, I think exists in that movie. Uh, and it's an interesting film. So I'll say that too. Before we go. Mm -hmm. um, so again, like Daniel and I were friends in college and the group of friends he was talking about earlier, like 
I know all of them. There, you like had like a really tight group of guy friends in college, yeah. and sometimes me and Zoe. And I feel like well, Lauren was kind of separate. We all hang out together, but not with that group. But I feel like we all hung out together, and it really kind of did have vibes like this movie. Like it was. I think back on those times so fondly and they were so fun. And I'm specifically remembering a time when we all drove to Cedar Point together. Do you remember this? Yeah. And how much fun that was. And like Rachel was there. That's Daniel's wife now. And I feel like that was the first time we got to spend time with her because she had gone to a different school. And it was just like our group just meshing and that day being so much fun and just being young and having like this experience with your friends. I don't know. I remember stuff, stuff like that. It was the best, you know, we had a, we had a friggin' blast, you know, and th- those that's what when I watch this movie, those are sort of the things I think of. Yeah, it's I have so many great memories like that. Like the I hadn't thought about that in ages, but that trip of, I mean, we had we had so much fun. We you had know? so like, much fun. It's such a great it was. Yeah, we had so much fun. It was such a great time. Like, yeah. you know, and and it's definitely it's that time before anything starts to like really count, you yeah. know, or matter like you're just sort of figuring out what it means to not live at home and what it means to be a person and it's really it was a really special time and I also kind of feel like you can be almost like a memory keeper for your friends so like I might not be as close to my friends from college now but I will always be a person that remembers who they were at that special time and vice versa like that's kind of what Glenn Close said like I was never I was always at my best when I was around you. And I don't know that I feel that way. I actually don't think I was at my best in college at all. But there was like this magical version of myself that existed in time that your friends are like memory keepers of, even when you're not as close. They kind of will always have that vision of you in that way. And I think that's really special. You know, I like that. I like that line a lot. The, it, 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 yeah, the, I was always at my best I, because it's like, even though it probably wasn't true for her either. Yeah, that's how you remember it, you know? That's how you look back on it. I was the best version of myself when, you know, when I was at this place. And I don't know. It's like I sit down now, like like last night I was watching the Michigan game. And go blue. my four-year-old. Go I blue. recorded it. Don't tell me what happened. Oh, okay. I, I won't give anything away. They're a good team this year. But um, although they've been accused of cheating, which is, <laughs> which it's is awful. Very, it's very, really sad. You know what? It's very disappointing that they got caught. But, um, <laughs> but um. <laughs> Uh, my daughter came down, my four-year-old daughter, and I was like, oh, you know, dad, you know, dad, I used to go to games here every weekend. Your mom came occasionally. You know, it's like you want to tell them about it. It's just this, like, I don't know, like, there's a reason that I try to make time to at least watch some of the Michigan game every week. And I yeah. stopped watching, like, Washington Commanders football games a long time ago. You know, there's a different yeah. sort of a connection that I feel if Michigan is playing than anybody else. So, yeah, same. Because you still have that t- tie to that place, you know, it's a special thing. And I grew up there too. So it's like a double tie for me. Well, yeah, I have sure. a parent that went to Michigan. And so I went to Michigan games all the time growing up. And I went to Ann Arbor all the time growing up. So I have a really deep connection with that place. And, um, but then college was so special. It was such a special time. And uh, yeah, that's why I'm glad that we are the memory keepers of that time and place. We are the keepers of memories. <laughs> Bow to us. But Daniel, how can people find you and follow you um, after listening to this podcast? Uh, I'm on Instagram, Daniel Strauss. I think that's it at this point. I think I've slimmed down to just that. So you can go watch the silly cartoon videos that I make with my friend Eric Schinzer uh, and see occasionally a picture of me uh, taken by one of my children. Also, your Instagram is very funny. I well, frequently you. laugh at what you thank post. You. We're having fun. 
Daniel, thank you so much for being here and for watching this movie with us. It was great to be here again, Sarah. And I look forward to your next call. I look forward to seeing who cancels next time we want to do one of these things. And to be frank with you, I look forward to watching another movie. Yeah, because I don't think you get to watch them a lot. And also way to go us for like, we went from thinking we were going to have like a whole group convo. We brought it for just the two people. Oh, we did we it. didn't need those other people. We, we never did. It was polite of us to invite them, but we can obviously carry this conversation ourselves. If they both want to pretend to be ill, that's fine. Shots fired. Well, we'll see you all next time on Talk Classic to Me and Go Blue. Go Blue. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guest this week was Daniel Strauss. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and maybe even find us on Spotify for podcasters or anchor.fm because they are the same thing now to become a contributing member. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me for some awesome content and to find out what's coming up next. Thanks for listening. <laughs>